welcome to Dead Headspace. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which includes Alexa. All you have to do is tell Alexa to play Dead Headspace Podcast for the latest episode every Monday and Thursday. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and alongside me is my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hey, everybody. And today we are talking with sound designer, musician, and composer. Chris Campbell, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. What got you into horror? So I um, I listened to several of your guys' episodes, and, and I love that you guys start out with that question. And so <laughs> I, I, was th- I was thinking about it for, for this weekend, and I was like, you know, really what it came down to was um, my, my dad and I, like, when I was a kid – we always had this kind of weird relationship, like my whole life, or you know. But I was always trying to find ways to bond with them. And when I was little, I mean, like young, like way too young, the way that I would bond is like everyone else would go to bed, and then he would stay up late and watch all these like horror movies. When I was, you know, so I was a kid, like growing up in like the late '80s, early '90s, and so I was probably like, you know, between like seven, eight, nine, and I would stay up with him, and he'd be watching Children of the Corn and like Pet Cemetery and Exorcist and all this kind of stuff. And I would be scared shitless, but like, you know, I, I, I got to like bond with my dad and like, you know, watch these movies like underneath the blanket and, and stuff. And um, like, I mean, still to this day, like I'm a chicken, but I like being scared. Like, I think that's a, a thing that yeah. a lot oh, of people yeah. that don't understand horror fans. It's not like it's not that I'm immune to like, you know, being scared. I get scared really easy, but I like it, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think just like over time, it just, it, it grew on me. I mean, I remember watching it and, uh, like the yeah. original it, and that thing fucked me up for a long time. But like, I, I just like, for whatever reason, I was still drawn to it, even that young. And, um, yeah, it, it just, it stuck around. So. <laughs> Brennan, that, you go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, that, that answer is, you know, very, we hear it a lot, you know, not that you know, people who are tied to the horror genre, whether it be through film, uh, literature, or in your case, music, um, they're not immune to being scared. They're not, you know, completely desensitized. If anything, you know, a lot of times they're more prone to it. Um, yeah. and it's that kind of imagination that, um, the, the willingness to immerse yourself and kind of, feel it a little harder than, you know, somebody who might not necessarily be drawn to it that really creates that love of the genre, I would say. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like, from the time, and I, I don't know, there's probably like some therapy that we can get into from here, but like, <laughs> from the time that I watched Amityville Horror the first time, I literally, at least like four times a week, I wake up at 3.15 in the morning, like almost every day. And I'll know it's 3.15 and I'll be like, I don't care how bad I have to pee. I will lay there until it's at least like 318 because that feels a little safer, you know, but like that just stuff just like sits with you. And and I know like I can't remember who it was, but I was listening to an interview with a, a director recently and um, the guy that he works with often who's written a couple of the films that he did, like the way he comes up with ideas for just scenes specifically is he purposely wakes up at like two, three o'clock in the morning and then walks around his house thinking about what would scare the shit out of me right now. Like, Oh God, if there was someone like staring at me through the window right now, yeah, I'm going to write that down. And like that, like, it's not like he's immune to it either, but he's willing to like sacrifice that to be able to, you know, scare the crap out of someone else. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> there is, there is something odd about that time, uh, two to 
four in the morning. And yeah. for me, I mean, yeah. it could be different for others, but uh, I don't know if you're aware, but where I work is a wastewater treatment plant and it's on an island by itself. It's on the outskirt of Atlantic City. Um, they're constantly whirring and you can't uh, hear what's going like you should wear sound plug uh, earplugs most of the time you can't you know hear most things around you so someone could sneak up yeah. behind you i remember i was reading laurel hightower's whispers in the dark this past february and uh i was reading this one part it's i'll just say it deals with a ghost and a bedroom that's it <laughs> i was the only one on the third floor at night it wasn't that early in the morning and um i just said fuck this i'm going downstairs where there's a few people <laughs> and it doesn't help that the fact that uh there have been those talks like in horror movies that hey at three in the morning i think something's up there um in the building where it's all industrial machines where we're dealing with a huge furnace that burns shit i'm just saying it's a perfect <laughs> breeding ground yeah. for something <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I mean, poets, writers, artists, like all throughout time always talked about specifically four in the morning. And there's like a ton of poems like about that hour, you know, that's kind of like all the night owls have gone to bed, but no one's really up yet. And there's just this stillness that I think is really beautiful. Um, but I think at the same time, when everything else is shut down, I think we're just open and receptive to stuff more than we normally are. I don't think it's mm. necessarily that things are more present than they you know, during that time, I think it's just that we're hyper aware, almost like, you know, how someone that loses one of, one of their senses, the other senses become stronger. It's, I think it's like that kind of thing. Um, so I think that just, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's just one more point on this, because uh, that, that's a very astute point. Um, my wife, girlfriend at the time lived in Providence, and she lived right off of uh, the main highway. I forget if it, I think it's 95, Brennan, going through Providence, downtown yep. Providence. Yeah, so she lived a block away from 95. She literally lived in between two super busy streets. They ran parallel to each other. One was an Italian section. The other was a hipster section. I know it's a weird juxtaposition, but um, it was always loud because there was a fire department. It was like their main route that they go through there. Um, but three when we got our dog, she's six now, but she was a puppy then. Uh, she'd wake me up at 3, 4 in the morning to go to the bathroom. And nothing was making a sound in in like near the heart of Providence. I'm like, this is creepy. And sometimes she would just look up at the sky and I'm like, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a like I'm such a dog lover. We have a, a blue healer. He's two years old now. And um, we uh, last year, of course, pre-COVID. Um, so I'm from Philadelphia, but I'm in Atlanta now. And um we sometimes head up to the mountains. There's like these beautiful vineyards and like wine country up there. And we rented this uh, old, it was a schoolhouse from like the 1800s that someone turned into a, just an Airbnb. And so we stayed there and, and it was gorgeous and like it just felt really peaceful. But like the second night that we were there, I woke up and my dog sleeps in the bed with us because he's spoiled as shit and we love him. And <laughs> I wake up in the night and he's just sitting on the bed, staring into the corner and just low growling. And like, he's awake, he's not sleeping. And I was like, we're supposed to stay two more nights. And we packed our bags and left the next morning. I was like, <laughs> not that it felt like sinister. It was just like, hey, you know, if you're cool, like being here, I just, I don't want to see you. Like, you know, 
we come in peace, we'll be out. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, Pat. When you you know said that the dog was just looking up into the sky, like my immediate thought was, well, at least it's not looking into an empty corner or something exactly. like that. <laughs> That's far that? more concerning. <laughs> Brennan, have you been to that schoolhouse? And I want to say it's Rehoboth, um, where it's one of the first when they had one room uh, public schooling. So this is probably like two, three hundred years ago. Um, it it's near that area. So maybe it's not Rehoboth, but it's in that one of those nearby towns. Anyways, there's uh, supposedly Hans there during Halloween. I don't know if it's true because I've looked in the windows, but still, like the mind plays so many fun tricks that even if you know it's bullshit, you put yourself in the right atmosphere. Yeah, you're you're done. Game oh, over, baby. Matt, like, growing up in Philly, um, I played in punk bands and stuff, and my buddies and I, like, we, we were just all into this stuff, like, always, you know, we were, of course, in the Misfits and everything, and um, <laughs> and our, our band was, like, slightly horror punk, and um, you probably know of the, the famous uh, abandoned asylum that's in Philly, and, mm-hmm. like, it, there's a bunch of, like, you know, Ghost Hunter episodes have been on this thing, and and we would do stuff like that. You know, we would go there and like break in and like freak each other out and that stuff. Like I, I've seen enough that, you know, that I'm a believer if, you know, if there ever was one. So I, I love I was actually that was one of my notes that uh, that you're from Philly um, and I live about 45 minutes. Um, I'll tell you off the air just in case I haven't said it on the air yet, because uh, you never know if there's one weirdo that might show up at your house. And I don't want to miss that. <laughs> But I live about 45 minutes um, east of Philadelphia. I love it there. My brother and I, when he comes down from Massachusetts and my dad comes down, like we like, you know, having beer and checking out. We love history. So it's it's just it's brimming with it, man. Um, And there's a lot of creepy shit that goes on. And there's a great music scene. So you got everything that you're into. Yeah, no, I mean, Philly's great. I mean, a lot of my family's still there. Um, You know, so we we head there, you know, at least a few times a year. Um, of course, I absolutely love New York. I mean, if I mean, I, I never really planned on having roots as deep as I do now in Atlanta. But um, you know, I met a really cute Southern girl, so she called me down here. <laughs> um, but you know, the music scene, the film scene here is amazing, and you know, so it's it's been great to be here. But uh, if an opportunity arose that would bring us to New York, I think that'd probably be the next place that we'd you know easily. So. Yeah. <laughs> Before we branch out, I just gotta ask: Are you a Philadelphia Eagles fan? I uh, the only sports I'm into have two wheels, and that's about it. So yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I like growing up. We would always go to Phillies games just because like you could get in really cheap, and like yeah. no one parted you, and you can like drink in the you know in the nosebleed section and hang out. It was like a very punk thing to go to baseball games for some reason. But that's <laughs> that's about all I know. <laughs> So, Chris, does that mean you have uh, some sort of history with BMX, or am I missing a two-wheeled sport? Yeah, no. So I, I grew up doing BMX, uh, you know, going to skate parks and stuff. Uh, then I got into motocross, raced motocross for a while. Um, now I ride a bunch of, you know, crotch rackets and, and stuff, <laughs> but still do some dirt bike stuff. Still got into mountain biking and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Nice. Now, sorry, go ahead, Brent. I was just, I was just gonna say I I grew up on BMX too. I don't think I've touched a bike in like 15 years, but uh, lot of lot of good memories. It's just like riding a bike. There you go. <laughs> um, and just a really fun way to kind of you know an, an excuse to go visit cities because they have always got good stuff to ride on. And 
Um, and you know, an excuse to travel really, uh, to see cities you might not otherwise go to with good friends. Yeah. But like the skate scene, the BMX scene and music has always just gone like hand in hand. So that, that was kind of always just like my whole world for a very long time. Yeah. I was in the skating big time, man, and it's all because of Tony Hawk. I was just all about that for <laughs> yeah. for a few years. It's yeah. fun. I, I I never I never had the hang of it. I gave it a shot, but I mean I I learned how to ollie once, and then I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. Never <laughs> never said I was good at it. <laughs> it's like I, I think or, it's like pool or darts for me. I like it when I'm drinking. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> well, that's dangerous. That's straight up dangerous. Um, I, I think if you play in a punk band, though, somebody issues you a skateboard if you refuse your BMX bike. You have to do. You have exactly. to pick one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it goes hand in hand for sure. <laughs> so I'd like to, and I know you talked a lot about this on. You were on an episode with Mallerman, right, on Inkeis. Yes. Yeah, okay. All right, just make sure I remember that. Yeah, that's where I first heard you. Then I messaged you before I even finished the episode. And I was like telling you how much I, I was into that. And uh, yeah, so Carpenter's Farm, you don't have to go into full details about that. You can if you want. I just wanted to, before we talk about it, um, for me as a listener, uh, I felt there were influences of Gustavo Santo Ulaya. I don't know if I said his name right. He did a lot of soundtracks, one being The Last of Us which is yeah. specifically what I thought it sounded like. Um, yeah. Mainly because it was just like, it swept you away. Like, I was listening to it again. I don't even know how many times at this point I've listened to your soundtrack, but um, I just, I it felt like it was very acoustic. It felt like uh, I, you could put me in nature. And honestly, how the hell did you do all that in such a short amount of time? <laughs> like, it, it was magnificent. You are a magnificent composer. I'm not kissing your ass. You're a star. <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know what to say to that other than thank you. I, I'm honored. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, um, it the thing that I've always just been into and, and what I think is open doors, um, even open doors for me when there was – absolutely like more talented people that could have stepped into a role for a film project or whatever that I've done has just always been like, if I see someone, an artist, a creator that does something that I'm inspired by that I'm like, just like shit, like you're so talented. It could be a sculptor. It could be a painter, an author, like whatever. Like I just enjoyed, and it's the beauty of social media. Like when it's at its best is to just be able to reach out to someone and just be like, man, I love what you do. Like, you know, Hmm. I, I'm, that I'm this other guy. If there's any excuse that we could ever like do a thing together, like whatever that is, like man, that would be a blast. And so I've just kind of always had that mentality to to not be afraid to just reach out to people and just say like, you know, hey, I love what you do, and and not for any like, hey, hire me for a thing. Like it's nothing like that. And and <laughs> yeah. like, um, but so when Josh when he first started this, um, another author friend of mine saw his post before I did. And he was like, hey, Josh Mallerman's doing this live book thing. I, I think it'd be up your, your alley. You should write something you know, for it and just you know, kind of see where it goes. And so I did. He was on like chapter four. And like the first two chapters are like one line each. So like he had only really written like two full chapters and, and I read it. And um, it really hooked me. And like I already, of course, knew who Josh was and was already following him. And um, I read Unburied Carol um, was the first book of his that I read before I saw Bird Box, of course. Um, and, and I was just hooked and like, 
every the thing I love about composing is that every project you have an excuse to dive into. I have so many musical influences and every film project, whatever is asking for something that pulls from one of those like many baskets that I have. And I just heard this, yes, like this last of us, like almost Western thing kind of coming out. And um, that stuff just kind of started to just pour itself out. And once you've kind of established like a, a world, like a sonic landscape and that this thing lives in stuff just comes out a little like more fluid, like a little easier. And so, you know, he would, we got to a point where, you know, he and I were then, you know, we've, we've become buds through, through this. And, you know, we would get on a chat like on a Saturday and he'd be like, all right, I finished these three chapters. Here's this, here's kind of what's happening. I would then sit down and write three suites, like write, record, mix, (laughs) you know, knock that out. And I mean, the beauty was that was kind of part of embracing lockdown. I mean, that was in the middle of, you know, when things really got heavy and um, I was working on a few projects at the time that got shut down because of it. And so things had sort of slowed down for me. And so this was this just beautiful escape uh, Mm. to just kind of focus on on something and and just have this great creative exercise. Um, So, yeah, I, I'll do this thing where I, I don't even know where the question started. <laughs> <laughs> and you're and you're doing it with a guy that you know for a fact not only will get a result, but he's just brimming with this magnificent energy. That's the second time I've used it. I think both times are very appropriate because he's he's just not only always always positive, and even when he's not talking super highly about something, which I've only seen that with the asshole in charge was in charge of the White House <laughs> that he's still nice about it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very energetic and he has that energy that is very uh, infectious. Well, I mean, the thing he did even during that whole project and just kind of who he is as a, as a person, like he he's one of those people that you hope when you reach even like remotely that level of success and popularity, fame, whatever, like none of that comes up. Like he's nothing but just wants to share opportunities that so like, I mean, he's talked about this a lot. Like when he first started writing, there was this author that believed in him that opened the door for him. And he's one of those people that's like, man, as doors open for me, I'm going to make sure I leave them open for the people that I'm bringing with me. Mm. And he's just, he's just one of those guys. And um, that's really inspiring. And, and I think a, a thing that we should all remember and, you know, not just be focused on our own trajectory, but, you know, finding people like it's important in any creative thing in any, any career is to have mentors, have people that are, you know, where you hope to be in two years, but then also be friends with people that are like, they want to be where you are in two years from now and pull them up with you and um, share whatever you can and then vice versa. Um, and he's, yeah. he's just a great example of that. Yeah. yeah I'll definitely echo that. There's so many good examples of that within, you know, specifically within the horror writing genre. And he certainly embodies that. I also feel like he's kind of too busy to realize how um, 
important or famous or whatever word you want to uh, put in there. Yeah, like, I just think he was he doesn't care. Even if he had the time, I just don't think he yeah. gives a shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think he doesn't give a shit about it, that. It's not gonna it's not gonna change his output, you know. So why yeah. why bother, you know, putting putting the thought into it really? Well, I mean, we we had such a I mean, I mean, we still do like such a, a good language with each other because he's like he was a musician first before he discovered his ability to write and so you know that shorthand that we have because you know we both know the touring world you know we know the band world and that kind of stuff so um yeah i mean that that's you know another excuse that we have to just kind of you know have a lot of influences that are similar exactly yeah. Um, so when you were whether whether you apply it to Carpenter's Farm or just your work in general, um, you know, you mentioned earlier and, you know, I saw the term, I guess, applied to some of your other stuff, soundscapes. And it kind of strikes me as less the idea of, you know, Quincy Jones saying you can pluck a melody with one finger uh, and more of like kind of the Coltrane school of thought of with the sheets, sheets of sound. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could uh just kind of talk about your creative process again in regards to Carpenter's Farm or whatever uh, with creating those soundscapes. I, um, so like a, a big thing for me, um, it sometimes for a pro, like let's say a film, um, there will be a melody that just you know comes into my head that like I, I see this character, I see what they're going through, and I hear this you know actual song. And it could be played on several different instruments. This is a melody that speaks to them. But for me, what really sets a tone, what really like brings me into a space is that sonic landscape that you set as a bed first. That That's the thing that puts you into a place. And then whatever melody, whatever thing kind of comes out that you hear is this, um, you know, you hear this thing and you're like, oh, that's this person's. And, it, and it's usually subconscious, hopefully. <laughs> like every time I hear this, I know this represents this person kind of thing. But um, textures and, and stuff like I really like, I don't know, when it comes to music and, and I don't have synesthesia. I wish I, I maybe I have like a part of that. But like I, I can feel some of that when it's coming out right. Like I can feel that texture. I can feel that space um, when when it's a horror project. If I'm doing it well, I can like taste iron because it's making me like taste blood because I'm scared. Like it, that kind of stuff comes out. And, um, like I, I build a lot of instruments, like a lot of weird ass shit that I don't want to just like, I don't work with templates. Like I, I don't want to repeat myself too much. Um, and so a lot of times I start with like, I love pulling what I see on the screen visually into the music. Um, so if there's something that's, taking place in a warehouse and there's like sheet metal everywhere and everything looks sharp. Like it's going to cut you. Like I'm, I'm going to like literally use like sheet metal and stuff in the score and, um, you know, have that visual and sonic thing like connect together because I think that's a, a great glue to start from at least. Um, and that, that kind of like that landscape, I think just, I don't know. Once you have that, I think the rest of the ideas just come really, really quickly for me. I love that idea of the kind of multi-sensory experience, and I, mm. I don't, I don't know if uh, you know what you described would classify as synesthesia either, but it's so interesting. I mean, I went to school for uh, mainly music education, but like my focus was in advanced jazz composition, and oh wow, 
all of a sudden I'm feeling like, man, I've never experienced anything like that. No wonder I'm not doing this for a living anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just very, very interesting to me, the way that you're able to immerse yourself, not just in not just connecting the sound with the visuals, but that you can bring in other elements to it as well. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was gonna actually one of my favorite toys. I don't know if I can hear this in the podcast, but this thing. Yeah, play it. Um, that's like one of these beasts that keeps growing. It just started as this box with like a few chunks of metal on it that I like bow and everything and. Now it has like microphones on the inside of it, and it's like a stereo thing that goes out. And then I have this whole like chain of pedals that it that it goes into. And and the cool thing about starting with something like that is because it's so organic, like even just the stuff that's not on there, like you can touch it and rub your hands on it and have all these other things. Like you know, having a plug in and just hitting a key, like that that's fine. But like having something that again connects that texture and the thing that you're seeing on the screen and you're bowing this as you're feeling this emotion like i don't i don't know that that stuff is also what draws me to like the whole like analog synth world and uh euro rack stuff is twisting knobs by hand and, like actually getting your hands dirty and stuff like that's that's the stuff that excites me yeah and i mean it's it, it's all about finding that you know especially with the way you're describing your experience you're not going to settle for a timbre that's pretty close. So, I mean, it yeah. sounds like if you, if you have an exact idea of the sound that you're looking to kind of add to represent uh, one theme or another, that if you can, you know, program a synthesizer to get something like it, that's not, you're not going to settle for that. You're not, that's not going to be good enough. So if you have to build your own, you know, weird machine where you can bow <laughs> coat hangers or whatever, <laughs> that's what's happening. Yeah, no, I, I love all that weird stuff. I um, I recently got this thing. It's called a um, a bull roarer, and you can see it in I don't know one of the crocodile Dundee things, but it's like one of the oldest found what they consider a musical instrument of like mankind, and it's this little piece of wood that you sling around your head and does oh, this oh yeah 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 kind of thing, and um, my father-in-law he has this big uh, garage for motorcycles and we emptied out the whole thing and I put microphones everywhere so that it was in like a surround kind of pattern around me and sat in the middle of it and you know did this thing and made this surround instrument with this thing that like it's not a synth you, you hear it and like you don't know what it is and, and I, I love that I feel like sometimes if you hear something you're like oh that's a blah 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 it takes you away from just experiencing what you want the music to make you feel. And instead now you're just listening to a piece of music. And so I love like using non-instruments to, to make that kind of stuff. What yeah. And you know, for uh, actually nothing yet. Um, <laughs> this was just the thing that I found and I, I had this sound design. There, there's a project I'm working on now that it might work for, but I, I try not to force that kind of stuff. Even if I think something sounds cool, I try not to just force it in there. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of that kind of like downtime is just, you know, finding weird things. My wife just bought me a um, Aztec death whistle, uh, which is a, it's a skull that, um, not a real skull. It's like, I mean, I think they probably used to be, um, but it has, I'll show you. 
Chris is getting up from his seat again. He's grabbing a real skull. He said it's fake, but it's actually a real skull. So um, it has like a, a whistle on, on the top and then like through where the jaw would have been. Um, some of the air goes through there, but then they would cut slits in the back of the skull in different like lengths so that when you breathe through it, it just sounds like someone's screaming. <laughs> it's like it's really horrifying. But um, now is that a baby skull? <laughs> I, I tried to keep a, I tried to keep a straight face when I said that. It's a very That's tiny a skull. No, it didn't. It's, uh, this this one's actually a squirrel. You know. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> I say that, but I'm vegetarian, so for anyone listening, I'm not actually harming animals. (laughs) Or babies. You know what? I'm a vegetarian, too, and I'm offended, sir. (laughs) What, um, why did you become a vegetarian? So, I, like, it's it's been this off and on thing, I think, for a lot of my life. Like, when I was in high school, um, of course, like, just because I was in the acting art kind of community like a lot of my friends already were and I've always just been such a huge animal lover Mm. Uh, and um they kind of helped me like just kind of figure out what that's like like well what do you eat that you know that's not that and not just eat junk food um so I was vegetarian like through most of high school and in my early 20s and then just kind of went away from it and then um had been just kind of like trying to work back to that uh, this year, like since January, I haven't, I haven't had any meat since January 1st this year. Uh, but a thing I really learned from some of my vegan friends that, you know, and I think this goes with most things anyways, is don't label anything. Like, don't like, don't give yourself this, this strict set of rules, like just be you. And if, and if you don't want to eat meat, just don't, (laughs) but if, you know, there's a beautiful piece of fish and you're just really craving it. Like it's, it's don't kill yourself. Like it's okay. You know? And I, and I think that's, that's the thing that I think has probably made me not stick to it before is that I was trying to be so strict and, you know, kind of be mean to myself about it that, you know, eventually it just kind of gets too hard. But if you're just like, no, it's, <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, but yeah, for, for me, as far as purpose goes, it's, it's just animal welfare. I mean, we, I mean, even when we were eating meat, I mean, my wife's a, a yoga instructor, you know, I still, you know, ride mountain bikes and stuff. So it wasn't like we were eating unhealthy anyway. So it's not really that. Um, it's really, I just like, I don't want to be part of that process, how animals are treated. And I mean, we still eat eggs, but you know, we spend $10 on eggs because we <laughs> make sure they're actually pastured and, you know, well cared for. But, um, there's a, uh, a film uh, a documentary that came out I think last year called 74 cows or 70 something cows. And it was this, I think he's Irish or Scottish and they're the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Irish, so I can say <laughs> <that>. <laughs> yeah, all three of us are Irish. So. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he inherited this, this cow farm like through his family mm. and can, you know, for, for meat, and had continued to run this this place and he just he couldn't do it anymore and and he talks about like the last time he put cows onto this truck to to go be slaughtered and looking into their eyes and knowing how scared they were and the amount of time he spent with them you know raising them to get them to that place to then just send them off and like he just he just couldn't do it 
And he, he had 74 cows at the time that he decided this. And he's like, I'm changing my whole farm. I don't even know that I have the land that can do it, but I'm just, it's going to become a, a vegetable farm and I'm going to find a sanctuary for all of these cows. Wow. And he found a place that would take all of them. And it was something like the amount of money that he could have made had he just sold all of them for meat, like what would have taken care of him for like a couple of years. And he was just like, no, I can't do it. And when he found the sanctuary, they all got to stay together and they, all of their little family groups, like he watched them all like take off and stay together and um, did all the hard work to, to make that change. But it's stuff like that, you know, I, I like I just, I love animals too much. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know what? I know this shows about you, but maybe you'll find this interesting. The reason why I, my wife's a vegetarian. She has been since she's been a, way before I ever knew her, but that's not why. Um, I kind of started re- like thinking about the whole way animals are treated, but what did it for me was when I got a mini pig, and she's three now. It took about seven months of having her, and I'm like, she's so sw- she's a per- she's like a little kid. She's like a five year old kid. She's incredible. She's annoyingly smart, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't give a fuck about bacon anymore. I can't. I know she would probably eat meat or another pig if cut up correctly. <laughs> I couldn't do it and I still can't. And then I'm like, I can't do it with cows. I can't, I eat seafood. I'm a pescatarian, but I, I love seafood. So I, I, I've had, I mean this, this year, I mean, I've had fish, you know, here and there. Um, I kind of want to also give that up too, but again, I'm not like beating myself up for it, but have you seen Oakjaw? I was going to bring that up. That <laughs> movie fucking destroyed oh. me, especially the last scene. I won't ruin it. Um, but the last scene with the baby. If you're uh, on pig. the fence about vegetarianism, go watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, man. I um, I actually want to address that in uh, one specific book down the line um, about <laughs> – I'm not going to bore anyone with the details about like how we treat animals because I, I don't like it. But here's the thing. I'm like Brendan needs me. My friends and loved ones do. I don't care. Just no, don't eat no. my fucking animals. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the same way. It's judgment free zone, man. Yeah. So I do have one more question on this. Um, And I'm generally curious, genuinely curious. Uh, So if you don't eat fish and you eat eggs, but what's your protein? Is it like beans or lagoons or? Yeah, I mean a, a lot of that for sure. Um, okay, we um we do uh, I, I do like protein shakes that are from like pea protein um, is like a thing I kind of use as like my like, after workout okay. thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, but lots of beans and everything. I mean, I love uh, we love Beyond Meat. I mean, I, I think that's just yeah. I'm I'm so worried that we're gonna find out that it's actually like just made from cancer or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I um I, I was I was gonna mention that earlier. I forgot. So I don't think I could have. Maybe I could have, but I don't think I could have been a vegetarian like five years ago. It's so easy now. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is is like <laughs> one of my guy friends said something about like, huh? So I thought you're supposed to get like healthy, but you're you know, you're still chubby. I'm like, oh, cool. Thanks, Dick. Um, <laughs> you can still get fat by eating like an idiot like me who has too many carbs or has too much sugar. 
Um, it, it's just the myths are pretty weird. And the way that people, I don't know about you, maybe it's the people I surround myself with, but the way that people treat vegetarians is like, it's nothing I'm going to cry about, but it's very strange. It's like, I went on a, a ba- to a bachelor party with my brother-in-law, and I got ripped on the entire trip. They're like, hey, here's some grass. Uh, you hungry? And <laughs> it's just like, oh, fuck you guys. <laughs> I, I think, obviously, it also depends on, like, where you are. But, I mean, if you go into Midtown, um, Atlanta, like, I mean, every restaurant, like, I mean, is, like, primarily vegetarian. <laughs> and they'll have some meat, you know. Um, so, But, yeah, I mean, it it's all good you just kind of roll the punches and do your own thing yeah um <laughs> and actually there is one other neat thing that in the mid uh east is the biggest uh place in the world right now that does this so they're working on a uh a meatless steak where they are yeah. based you saw that uh it well go on because it might be a different story than i'm thinking so uh i want to say it was israel israel or iran I ignorantly mix those two up often, um, but it was basically just scientists breaking down the components, the elements, the textures, yeah. the um, look and texture of fat on meat. Actually, it's not actual fat, and uh, it's just – I think it's like within a five-year period, it's going to be super common where it's um, synthetic meat, yeah. and I like that. I mean – Again, I love animals, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, that that wigs me out. I don't know. I, like I'm, it's, I'm just it's good. Weird. Like I don't, I don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, why don't you steer us away from this conversation in case we, uh, you know, like, I know. I feel, God. I feel like I, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm being like Catholic guilted right now, almost. Like, it's, no. I, I had this period in my life where I where I gave that an honest go, and it was more than five years ago. So, I mean, Pat, yeah, I'd agree with you. If you don't live in kind of a city-ish setting, you know, um, that has that kind of hipster crowd, it it really is hard, yeah. you know. You yeah. you yeah, I remember living off Boca and Morningstar, um, <laughs> and you'd go to a restaurant and they're they're you know their veggie menu yeah exactly here's your salad or you know we could we could put a piece of lettuce on bread if you want some carbs (laughs) well do five hail marys and a fuck you and carry on sir still good catholic way (laughs) exactly like i I, i'm I'm like we need we need to steer the subject elsewhere because i'm just i'm embarrassed right now i'm getting reversed you know reverse veget vegetarianized you usually you guys are used to uh people picking on you so now it's your turn to uh (laughs) return the favor and and shame me now the good news is i'm probably gonna die 20 years before the two of you um so there's that (laughs) well who will be my all right chris will be my new (laughs) co-host you guys you guys can talk about vegetables all day and tofu All right, so you're typically uh, the good segue person, so I'm going to go back to uh, – what do you want to go – do you want to dive into music? Hard? You know what? We, we have jumped all over the fucking place. We went from, you know, you liked watching movies and and, and ma- letting them make you uncomfortable when you were little to talk about Carpenter's Farm. We skipped a little chunk of time there, so I figure we go back and we visit that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, Chris, I'm wondering if – if that, you know, 
if those horror movies at all kind of tie in with your journey to music or if you kind of went back after the fact and said, you know, there was some cool uh, atmosphere building. There was some cool music stuff in those movies. I mean, the weird thing is, like, I I don't know. I mean, by the time I was probably 12 or so, minus, of course, maturity and all kinds of stuff, as far as the things that I like and um, – even some personality like i haven't changed much since then like i I really like like a weird thing that happened that i did have to look back at was like when i was getting into films like that when again was like way too young to be getting into them um i was also like i'm such a huge tim burton fan and like i would watch um you know of course like edward scissorhands beetlejuice and, and and all of that and I was too young to really know like what a film composer was, but I knew I loved the music and, and I could like hum like the entire score, like beginning to end without even knowing that, that there was like a person tied to it. I was just like, Oh, that's the music that goes with this movie. And I would, there was a, a way all of that made me feel that I could always identify when I heard it somewhere else. So like uh, family dog was this cartoon that Danny Elfman scored. Um, that I was going to ask if you like him because he's done all those movies. Yeah, Elfman. exactly. So he's like, he's one of my biggest heroes. And, and he um, did the greatest Batman movie. Sorry to interrupt again. Yeah, the Batman, the, the Michael oh, Keaton one, man. Absolutely, man. Um, but like, so Family Dog was this cartoon that came out on Amazing Stories, which was this old, like late 80s show that had all these it was like a less creepy version of like creep show or something. Um, every episode was like super different. And this cartoon came out and I remember like hearing the music and the music made me scared. Like, even though like it wasn't that dark of a, of a cartoon, it was kind of weird, but, um, and then like I would hear it elsewhere. Like even like the Simpsons, I was like, ah, why, why is that theme? Like, so like otherworldly, like where, where is that? And I would find like, I was drawn to this music and, and it was all just, you know, many different genres. And once I was old enough, I was like, Oh, it turns out there's like this musician that I actually am in love with and I didn't know it. And, um, so that like definitely kind of brought my musical taste and film taste to, you know, a certain place because of that, I got into like a lot of Vincent Price films and everything, you know, I was in like junior high and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I took piano lessons when I was a kid, but like, you know, you can't hear music yet. You're just repeating the thing that you're seeing on the page. Like you don't really understand what it is that you're doing. And so that didn't really stick for that long. And I hated it, you know, that kind of thing. But then as I got older, like um, when I was uh, 12, I got my first drum set because I was like, I thought drums was going to be like a thing. And um, when I found drums, I could like, everything clicked. I Mm. like, I could hear music. I finally like understood what it was that I was doing and just fell like head over heels in love and like just locked myself in my room and just played the shit out of my drums. And that became my first love, which still is. Um, I currently have a set of eat drums behind me, but, um, what brand I'm a, I'm a drummer. Uh, Brennan's the pianist and, uh, a bassist. I'm a, I fucking love drums, man. I like the harmonica too, but I'm not good at it. Nice. Blues horn. Um, yep. So I I had like this 
uh, shitty uh, CB, which is a like, <laughs> you know? crappy brand of Tama. <laughs> that was my um, first. That was my yeah. first drum set too. That, that was mine. They and, suck. Uh, <laughs> oh, terrible. But then a buddy of mine, um, when I was playing, I still didn't get a new set yet. Uh, he played, and we hang, hung out a lot. And he had uh, uh, Tama Rockstar, mm. and the kick drum on those, which they don't make anymore. Um, I can't remember the size of that, but I remember like going to his house and playing those and I was like, holy shit, this is what they should sound like <laughs> and kind of fell in love. So like, yeah, I, um, I mean, I still have an acoustic set. I just, I don't play it here. Um, and it's a, I finally found an old rock star. And so I bought that just cause I've, I've always loved it, but I have like the first snare my dad ever bought me was uh Slingerland, which is Buddy Rich's company. Um, we had those. Um, it's this big steel thing. It's deep as hell. Uh, that thing sounds, sounds awesome. But, um, yeah, I, I, so drums was like the thing I found. And then shortly after I discovered punk and like just head over heels and in love with music. But like the thing was, is even when I was super into like the Philly street punk scene in the New York, uh, punk scene, like I was still also in, in love with film music, horror stuff, Danny Elfman things like it, you know, I was still just a, a film dork. And those two things just continued to grow at the same time. But I never knew that like being in the film world and doing this music thing was a possibility. I just thought that the path was then being in a band, touring, making albums, that kind of thing. Um, and so I ended up at, played in several bands, but then, uh, I was in a punk band in high school and we got signed and literally like graduation and a month later headed out and was on the road for like three months and got to see the entire U S by the time I was 18. And, uh, it, it was just, it was awesome. And, and I thought that was kind of like the, the journey, but you know, as we all know <laughs> that whole, like, I think I'm going to be a rock star thing. It's just, that's, that's a whole beast. And, uh, it, it wasn't for me. Um, but I, uh, kind of left there and came back to Philly, went to school for music theory for a while. Um, got really disheartened because I got really tired of professors just talking about music as science and math. And, and like, we just break down like, you know, it, nothing about like the, the art behind it or the mood behind it or anything. It was just dissecting it in a way that was not enjoyable. And so then I left and went to school in Florida, uh, full sale university for audio production. Um, because I was just in love with being in the studio and, um, that kind of opened my eyes to going back to like, Oh, this whole film composition is a thing. Uh, still didn't really pursue it, but, um, a bunch of the guys that I went to school with in Orlando, uh, I, I really knew nothing about the South, but <laughs> I went to school with a bunch of guys that were from kind of like South Carolina, Atlanta areas. And, and they were like, hey, after school, a bunch of us are moving to Atlanta because it's a really cool film scene, cool music scene. And I was like a bunch of like all my friends in Philly, like everyone, once they were at an age, went to L.A. or Colorado or something like everyone left. <laughs> and, um, so I didn't have a whole lot tying me down there and I was just like, you know what, I'll give Atlanta a shot. And, um, came down here, started a band. We were relatively successful. 
but through that had some opportunities to score a couple films because a lot of the stuff we were starting to write was definitely leaning towards like it was film music. You know, I mean, we were starting to, it, it was like people described it as uh, the soundtrack to a bar fight in the 1920s. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of my first taste of that. And um, it, you know, again, the whole being in a band touring world, like it just, it didn't pan out to, to be a, a thing that was going to last forever. And so that kind of fell apart. And then I hated it because I sort of walked away from that scene. But at the time, you know, I got to a place where like I could go to a show in Atlanta and people would like recognize me and this is really cool. And I just like walked away from all of it and then ended up, this is a really long winded like answer to this question. And I'm just rambling. So just interrupt as soon no, as no, I'm no, boring. No. Anyway, keep talking. But, um, I, uh, I got married and, you know, kind of got comfortable with like, you know, day job stuff. But, uh, then I ended up going through a divorce and, uh, was dealing with some mental health stuff on my own um, and got to a place where I was just like, you know, I, I need to go be with family. And I, I left everything. I, you know, quit the band I was in everything went back home to Philly as a 29 year old man and, you know, moved in with my parents and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, got help um, and, you know, was a better man for it. And, through that, one of my friends that I had met while I was in Atlanta at the time, who's now my wife, <laughs> we stayed in touch and kept talking while I was up there. And, um, you know, romance blossomed. <laughs> and a pretty Southern girl called me back to Atlanta. And uh, it's so that was uh, that's now been six years ago. And coming back, like, with a clear head and just. A, a hunger to do this thing the right way and it, I don't know just the a funny thing was like kind of re-entering uh, this scene you know the film scene the art scene in Atlanta like the first couple films I was on and, and I love being on set when, when I get to, to work on a film, I love being there and like meeting the people and get to like see the project. And like, I just, I, I love that environment. And like a couple of the first projects I'm working on, like I'm the oldest guy there, <laughs> you know, I mean, probably only by 10 years, but still like it was weird at first because I was beating myself up because I was like, man, you had it. You could have been here 10 years ago, but you walked away from everything. The other side of that is like, had I, been getting the opportunities that I'm getting now, then I would have blown it. I mean, I was drinking way too much. I was, you know, a, I was an asshole, <laughs> like all, all this kind of stuff. And it's like now to be at this place where I'm just this, like such a more peaceful person, like everything just seems to just work. It's, it's meant to be, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Everyone's on their own journey and, you know, we, we don't know what, what's around the corner. Um, I would have done a million things differently, but like, I'm so grateful for, for where I am today and going through what I went through just makes me a more empathetic person too. So like, it's hard to be an asshole when I, I don't know your struggle, like, but I can imagine, you know, when I meet anyone. So 
Anyways, sorry, that went dark and deep, but <laughs> no, no, that's 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 perfect. And I mean, the the place it ends up is you are exactly where you are supposed to be right now, and that any other journey is not going to wind up with you there. You know, with you your get wife. those exactly. That's the exactly. most important thing. What what I what I kind of take away from that is if you did have you know you you might say man I wish I had those opportunities ten years ago but if you did and you know your uh, hypothesis is right and you had blown them like where you know ten years later where are you uh, probably not in as mentally good a place probably not as good uh, in as good as uh, a professionally good place. Um, you know, I, I kind of like the way that wraps up, if I'm honest. Yeah, oh, I, I do too. And, and that's like a thing I learned in, in that whole process, too. That's a thing that I really cling to. And I wish I was talking to someone earlier today. and I really wish I could remember the, the poet that said this. But I, I had to learn also, like when you like if you meet someone and you're like, hey, I'm so and so and I'm an author. It's like, mm. You're a human being who writes books first. And when I would identify myself as like, hey, oh, you know, I'm Chris. I'm a musician. I'm Chris. I'm a human being who plays music. And when you wrap up your identity with the thing that you do, and I think the quote that this was was like um, something like if you do that, inevitably you become that thing and that's your curse. And if any of that's ever taken away, like there's nothing underneath you and you just fall. And so I think I had to learn that first is like, and that's been a great release too, because I think before I'd be like, I'm just this thing. I'm just this thing. But now I'm like, screw it. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I compose films and it's, it's a dream come true, but like I got back into painting, like, you know, I, I love sculpture. I mean, friends of mine during COVID, like, you know, I wrote a film and we shot like the short film just because we love creating stuff. Like it's do your thing, you know, I mean, certainly you have your, your path career wise, but, um, that was a really valuable lesson to like, not just tie in my identity with a thing I do. And it kind of goes along with Mallerman's point that he said to us, whatever the fuck that was, I think I want to say two months ago, but it doesn't (laughs) matter anymore. No. He said something to the effect of uh, that I am paraphrasing him. So forgive me if I'm doing a terrible job. But basically that uh, there's a pitfall that younger or newer authors tend to uh, become victims of, which is that they say, all right, this is my first one. Let's put everything about me in it. No, it's one book. It breaks up one part. Um, And that was kind of how since he wrote some – Brendan, correct me if I'm wrong, but he said since he – since he wrote so many books before, he didn't feel a pressure within himself to do that to himself. I'm just throwing this in there because it piggybacks off of two successful individuals that I think would be helpful for someone that maybe if they're listening to this, they're like, didn't think of that. Maybe that'll save me a little trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my my wife is, is excellent at that too as far as what you're saying like putting everything into a a, a thing like (laughs) i i play her everything that i'm working on so you know have her come down and the great balance is she hates horror like she she (laughs) she hates being scared like 
a lot of the projects that I work on, she kind of like watches like this, would prefer to just hear it. Um, but she also like, because of that, I'll play her something and she'd be like, that's not very scary. I'm like, okay, I, I need to make it scarier. That kind of thing. But also like I'll play her stuff sometimes that she's like, okay, that sounds cool. Do you need that much in there? Like <laughs> you don't have to throw everything at the screen. And so she's a great balance for that, but just be like, you know, Sometimes that texture was just fine. You didn't have to <laughs> layer 15 more tracks on there to accomplish the same thing the two were already doing. <laughs> Dita, a side question. Does she like serial killer documentaries? Uh, it, it depends on how they're told. I mean, right. she likes, she likes uh, you know, nonfiction in that way. Um, not necessarily a thing she's looking for like mm. um you know so like uh princess and the frog the disney film like that scared her the the um <laughs> the scene with the voodoo stuff so that's that's kind of where she she's at which is a great balance for me because like you know if it was me you would walk into the house and all the walls are painted black and then i turn around and this giant like thrown with skulls on top of it and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> so she keeps me grounded nicely <laughs> Brennan, sir. I, I was going to say, I think Patrick asked that because we're finding a theme, at least at, at, uh, among us two, at least with uh, with our wives as well. Horror writers with uh, or horror genre people with wives who don't care for horror, but really enjoy that whole true crime genre, uh, yeah. be it documentaries, yeah. uh, podcasts or what have you. It's like, yeah, the fiction stuff scares me, but tell me about the really crappy stuff that really happened. <laughs> I remember I was going to say there's um there's an author I have in mind um who writes just horrible, horrifying stuff. Um and I remember him saying that he started reading the book um I'll be gone in the dark about the uh Golden State Killer and, and he couldn't sleep for a week. You know, and, and and the shit this guy dreams up, it's it's awful. It's awful. Um, but, you know, you, you get that kind of taste of, oh, you know, this this actually happened. I, be, I better lock my damn door. Um, and it's it's a whole different world. It's a whole different ball game. Let's dive into some projects you're working on now, because I did actually see real all... quick, real quick, because I had Go something ahead. I wanted to touch on that. Yeah, uh, sure. You said, oh, I think you said it like a half an hour ago, Chris, but that's okay. I'm going to bring it back up. Um, you you were talking about how, you know, Danny Elfman is a huge influence on you. And uh, first of all, you know, you said one of, one of the things, even though his uh, film music is not necessarily always horror, but it has that kind of like spooky, creepy element to it, or at least that kind of... Uh, it, to me, it, it mixes like kind of the manic zany with 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 spooky, yeah. but um, but then you recognized it in The Simpsons and how freaking cool slash Danny Elfman is it to that he took a cartoon and he started it off with a tritone, the most dissonant <laughs> um interval you could possibly start you know a cartoon theme song with, um, and, and that's just, that's just very him. Now, my question to you, I don't know if you know this, but I always heard that Danny Elfman either can't or doesn't read music. I wonder if, if you know mm. anything about that. Um, it, it, as far as Danny Elfman, I'm not sure. But to speak for my case, 
I, I used to be able to sight read. Um, I mean, that, that was like my whole training when I walked away from when I got really like, just kind of turned off by just, and I don't feel this way now, but I, I got to a place where I was just like, I'm, I'm losing my fire. I'm losing my passion for just making stuff that I like because now I'm hyper analyzing it and no, this shouldn't go there and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and to me, I just like, I, I hear like I dream about songs and I dream about melodies and I wake up and, and write them down. And like, there's just my world. There's just always stuff. Go, it's never quiet up here. Um, and I felt like when I was analyzing it too much, those sounds were getting quiet. Um, and so at, I, I know what I'm looking at when I like look at cheap music, but it's, it's not my thing. I mean, if you put it in front of me, like I, it would take me a while to like figure out what the hell I'm playing. It's, it's not a, yeah, it's not me. <laughs> um, but as far as like the theory goes, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's important and, um, you know, for sure. I can talk to other musicians about it. Like I know enough of that, but, um, I think the other cool thing that I I like about at least the, the type of stuff that I work on, at least now, um, I, I like not needing to explain where this thing came from. Like, I mean, I love like it. I just, I wrote this super simple, like, piano and cello piece for this short film that I did recently. And, um, like it's, it's totally wrong. <laughs> like it, it doesn't make sense where it lands, but it just sounds right to me. And I, I think when I was so focused on all of that, it would have been like, you can't do that. No, but it works. And, um, I don't know if that is true about Danny Elfman, I, I imagine that's probably the same thing for him is that like, this just sounds right to me and therefore I'm going to do it. <laughs> I heard that about John Lennon as well. I don't know if that's true, but that I is... heard it about Paul McCartney. I wonder if, uh, if, if that kind of goes hand in hand. I, you know what? Individually, they're great together. It's like, Ooh, you guys should write music together. <laughs> you <laughs> could be pretty good. <laughs> Regardless of whether it's true for one of those people or all three of them, I think it definitely, you know, plays off what Chris was saying. Everybody's journey is different, you know, and especially nowadays where there's so much evidence about, you know, people learning in different ways. You know, even if you just break it down to visual learners versus auditory learners, I'm very much a visual learner. Even if I've played a piece a hundred times, I can do it better if I have that sheet music in front of me. Even if I'm not looking at it, if I have it there to fall back on, if I need it. Uh, a chord chart, you know, lyrics, something like that in front of me when I'm trying to play. Well, whereas I have, you know, students like private instrument students who come into me and I'm their third teacher because for whatever reason, their parents really fucking want them to play piano, (laughs) even though they hate it. And as soon as we say, okay, this music reading thing, not even like boil it down to this is hard for you, but it doesn't make sense to you. You, you you can hear the sounds you want to come out with. You can hear the harmonies you want to make. You just can't read it off a piece of paper. So why the fuck are we making you read it off a piece of paper? Well, and, and I think that's that's exactly where, where, where I was. I mean, I, I could do it just fine, but it didn't have a lot of value to me. And I mean, I you know, I started playing drums and stuff. But then once I was playing in bands, like 
you know, hanging around guitarists and stuff, you know, I picked up a guitar and I would just start playing it. And the way I learned how to play guitar is I just sat down and played guitar to my favorite albums, like just, you know, and you know, it's funny cause like my wife, she wanted to learn guitar. She's an amazing singer, by the way. She, she's a musician in her own right. Um, but she wanted to learn guitar and she got frustrated after like me teaching her for like two months cause she couldn't play yet. And I'm like, I gave up like my childhood to be able to play the instruments that I can. Like you're not going to learn this in a month. I locked myself in a room and played this stuff. And like, it, yeah, I, I didn't need to necessarily read it cause I could just repeat it as soon as I heard it. I could just, you know, and that's how I learned. But again, everyone's journey. Yeah. yeah oh absolutely and you know mo- most of my students most of my private students tend to be between like six and 12 but um i have one student who is um in her she's probably about the same age as me in her mid-30s and she has been trying to learn piano since she was in like fourth grade and she just won't give up on it and it wasn't until she every piano teacher that she had said you need to learn it this way and and mm you know yeah i had to throw at her like why you know why can't we (laughs) use chord charts like instead of instead of written sheet music why can't we label the notes you know i i know that your average music teacher is going to say well you can't write a you have to learn that it's on the second space or whatever but um you know you're not training to be the conductor for the boston pops you're not training to be uh theory teacher at juilliard like, why the fuck do you need yeah. to go about it in that direction if you can find a plausible alternative that's going to allow you to create music? And, I mean, I really feel like that that's speaks awesome. to a lot of different paths, not just necessarily music ones. You know, the society kind of deems that we go down a certain path and we we learn a skill a certain way, we live life a certain way, when it's just not necessary. And, you know, some of us who can excel doing things one way are told that's not the right way to do it. So we can't do it. Um, Mm. and I feel like I should have a really cool, like wrap up for this, but I don't. So I'm just going to stop talking. I think that makes you a great teacher. I mean, and I, I like, I applaud you for that. Um, I I used to do drum lessons when I was still in Philly and uh, I had a few students and they were, you know, about that age, like probably like, you know, 10, nine or whatever. And I loved it. Like I, 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 like I don't want kids. I don't have kids. I have a puppy and there's plenty. Like I, I enjoy being around them in, in like small doses. But like when I would do lessons, it was at least like this thing. Like I'm usually really awkward around kids, but at least we had like a common thing, you know, that we could talk about. They want to learn this. And that was a blast. Um, as soon as I have time, I think I would love to, to pick that up again. I, I did like teaching. I forgot how to read music. Brennan actually asked me a week or so ago. And, uh, I play drums for the school, like, concert band, whatever the fuck it's called, and uh, played it for four or five years, and don't remember. I just played a music I like, like you, man. I I mean, like, my brother plays a piano, and he's also, uh, this is funny, I don't know if I told Brennan this, Um, my brother's a bassist and a pianist, and uh, we would just, when I lived with my parents, and he did, back in Massachusetts, we would just jam in the garage, you know, maybe smoke a little, and uh, we would play Jimi Hendrix or some other rock because we're big into rock from the uh, '70s. So we just yeah. fuck around with that stuff. <laughs> That's cool, man. 
Look, I don't mean to disrespect drummers, I promise, but <laughs> go fuck yourself. Me, no, 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 I don't like no, how you no, worded no, that. It seems to me that the reason that drummers have to learn notation is nothing else besides equity. Everybody else is stuck reading the sheet music thing, so we have to give it to drummers as well. <laughs> if there's any instrument that doesn't need sheet music it's you guys you know and and, and you're this especially drum set notation is so fucked up <laughs> it, it is but i mean the funny thing is like i was i played in the you know school band i mean for i mean like a year because my parents made me when i was playing drums and i remember um and this is like you know the, the band and like one of the and I just like I could read the sheet music, but like once I heard it once, I was just like, fuck it, whatever. I'll just play the thing. And I remember like I was playing like a hi hat, like I wasn't even on like a full drum set, and I was just playing the song. I wasn't even looking at the sheet music. I remember we finished, and and our teacher was like, hey, Chris, great job. Uh, way to you know like follow whatever. And I'm like, well, fucking reading the sheet music and playing the damn song. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the universal drummer experience you know you see a fifth grade concert band and the so the saxophones the trombones the trumpets their their eyes are all locked on there like learning how to read their pitches and the drummers are are, are perfect and you go back and you check on them and they're not even looking at the right damn page <laughs> yeah. i like the drums because i could sit down which is the same reason i'm a writer <laughs> i'm just a lazy motherfucker <laughs> so chris what is the i'm very curious because you've described instruments that i didn't even know were in existence what is the most unique instrument that you have made um i don't know that the what i call the nightmare box is is probably that right now anyways okay Um, but uh i also made a, a cello type thing out of a home depot bucket um and that has a pickup in the back and i could send that through pedals and stuff too um so yeah i i I have a buddy who's a um he's a metal sculptor and he's working on teaching me how to weld and i would really love to get into welding and start making like metal pieces that um you know mostly percussive things uh so that's that's kind of next on my list oh right on man learn to weld and you can work in my job (laughs) <laughs> awesome now chris i i have a question and as a percussionist i i'm very interested in your answer um but when you're composing how do you go about choosing a key is it just kind of happenstance whatever you kind of hear it in your head that's the key or yeah you- i mean if it's melody driven it's mm-hmm. it's usually because it's already in my head and then i just kind of find it um i, I will say and this is just <laughs> admitting <laughs> sometimes it'll be like I may have this new melody that sounds very different. And then when I sit down on the piano to, to play it, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's also an A minor. And then I'll just change it just because I like the thing I did before was also an A minor. I'm like, well, fuck it. It's in C sharp now. <laughs> <laughs> but like sometimes that doesn't work because I mean, like even just like key changes, you know, even if it's the same pattern, of course, the three of us know this, like, every key has has a, a mood it has a tone it has a thing that goes along with it even if it's still minor even it's still but like a minor and c sharp minor do not sound the same i mean mm-hmm. obviously yes of course they don't sound the same but like they don't feel the same um and so sometimes i'll want to do that because i was already like in this key for this other thing and i just can't because it just doesn't feel right um but 
other times, um, if it's textural, um, it, a lot of that will come down to if, if I'm hearing a texture or I've, I've made a thing that's making a texture and, uh, once I've kind of built the virtual instrument around this thing that I've recorded and sampled, uh, it might just sound good when it hangs out on this note, it might just mm-hmm. sound right there. Um, so it's, I think it's mostly like heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it, sometimes I'll get too heady about it. And I think that's kind of when I fuck stuff up and then I have to kind of go back and just be like, um, when I, I, I like quicker turnaround projects because I don't have the luxury of overthinking because often like the first idea is usually the best. Um, and it, I, I like just, you, you go with your gut. Sometimes it's wrong for sure. Um, but I think it's also the most honest when you're just kind of like, I don't know, this just feels right. This for whatever reason. Now I fucking love that answer. Uh, because uh, we, we had one other composer on here and he was, forgive me if you don't agree with this. He was a little more theory driven where I guess I would consider you a little bit more heart, more soul driven. Um, if you don't disagree with that, I'm going to go ahead and label you, label you that way. I um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I specifically asked him the question, do you put any stock in, you know, the way that different keys kind of have, you know, people have assigned, I think E minor is the saddest key. D major is the key for victory, for triumph and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and I almost thought about asking you that. But, you know, as soon as you started talking about how it's just the way you go with it, the way you hear it. Um, I kind of dropped it, but then you immediately bring that back, like, you know, A minor and C sharp minor, they're not going to have the exact same quality to them. Yeah, it's the same intervals. It's the same um, a, a minor scale is a minor scale, but just starting on those very slightly different pitches is going to result in a different quality to the melody. Yeah. Um so no question here. I just really, I, I really like that. You know, I, I have somebody else who, who says, you know what, this song is, is I like the minor. I like the, I like the way the melody sounds, but it's not fucking sad enough. So I'm going to move it to E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I mean, a lot of it too is instrumentation. I mean, like to me, I, I like, I love, you should see the size of my fucking sub in the studio. Like I love low end shit. Like I want to hear like the deepest things, like, when I have the opportunity to just like, you know, bring the thunder <laughs> I want to. <laughs> and so depending on the instrumentation, like, you know, if like, I mean, I, I've done guitar stuff where I've done drop C, it doesn't hold very well, but like, so you're kind of limited. Like I can't go much deeper until I sample it. And then it starts to sound artificial and, and that kind of thing. If it's going to be cello driven, like I'm kind of limited on that range. So like, I, I do enjoy hanging out in the lower register of, of instruments. So some of that's also kind of taken in, in consideration, but not much. It, it's, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, Oh, sorry, Pat. I'm, I'm jumping in real quick with a follow-up. Um, random question, Chris, but do you know the band thrice? I know that name. Why do I know that name? I don't know. I, 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 that sounds familiar, but I, yeah, I don't know. Um, they have an, they're, they're one of my favorites and they have an album called, uh, Visu, V-H-E-I-S-S-U. Um, I have no idea what that means, but, um, the, 
it's one of my favorite albums of all time and the album notes to it you know are they they go above and beyond lyrics they they kind of go into the recording process and just you you mentioning some stuff like that really kind of reminded me of the recording of that album where they wrote a song and they said this is we like this but we're gonna try um i think they put it one of their guitars in drop b tuning they 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 Hmm. said we we had it in drop c and it just wasn't something wasn't working there so you know the the strings are flopping around like freaking jello but um they put it in drop b tuning for that and they said this is this this is the song we wanted it that that half step makes all the difference in the world yeah um there was another one where the bridge kind of uh has a this this kind of snare roll that leads into the last chorus and i think they tried something like 34 different snares before they found <laughs> the exact one that like this is the sound yeah um and, and just i'm reminded of that because it's that that kind of sounds like your process a little yeah. bit yeah no I, I i just wrote that down because i'm like I, I need to invest in these people more but um yeah i mean if if you saw like i i cringe at the i there, there's been times when there's been people that have approached me that are, are younger in school and you know kind of want to see what I do. And I'm like, uh, you don't really want to hang out in here while I sit here and go, no, no, no. <laughs> I go through like 37 different choices of something until I'm like, yes, that's it. And, and often I do know when I get to that place where something's not working, it's usually what leads to me making something. Cause I'm like, hey, none of this is right. And then I just kind of like start from scratch but so yeah, going through that many snares. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so the the composer that um, Brendan brought up, his name is Nelson Everhart. He did. Uh, he's a media composer. He's um, done his probably most well known is Turok Evolution for the GameCube, uh, Turok Three: Shadows of Oblivion. I uh, did a bunch of games for. It was all acclaimed that he worked for. That's awesome. Um, yeah, he he was really fun to talk to because uh, I initially found him because the Turok Three Shadows of Oblivion came for the N sixty four and it was creepy as fuck and I played that when I was twelve and uh, I was like, hey, he's actually on Twitter and he actually replied. That, so that's dope. This, I I would love to to work on a game. I, I'm actually like I'm not a gamer. I, I like games. I play games sometimes, um, but I like. I don't know. I, I think it's partly attention span. I don't know what the issue is. I just like I can't hang. But I I love the immersiveness of that stuff. Of course, like Silent Hill. I mean, you know, Resident Evil. Yeah. Of course, Doom, especially like the new Doom. So Mick Mick Gordon um, is the composer that's worked on Doom. Uh, shit, what's the other one? Um, he, he's incredible. I'm, I'm like Quake. obsessed with this. You're talking about for id. Uh, no, the, well, the, it, he, he did, uh, Killer Instinct, um, what else, I'm, I'm looking at my playlist, I, I, like, sometimes that's, like, my, my running music is, like, I'll, I'll listen to his score to Doom, because I'll, hmm. like, run fast as hell, but, uh, <laughs> um, Wolfenstein, yes, um, he did that in 2014, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to work on a game, I, I think that's, because it's such a different just process 
because you're working on these loops and things that can then like become this other thing. And it's just, it's different than just seeing the final product on screen and you're writing to this thing. It's linear. Um, I, I would just love that exercise to, to totally get away from that. No, yeah. I'm curious. I, I, I feel bad cause I, it almost sounded like I was dragging him before and I'm absolutely not, but, um, I'm he, Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> You're messaging him right now, but but no, I mean like any composer, and and you know I I've kind of latched onto it with you, but any composer is going to be, um, they're going to want control over that timbre, over that exact sound, over the exact dynamic and whatever. But um, if you're composing, you know, back in 1996 for the Nintendo 64. And they're saying, okay, you're composing, but here are your limitations. Yeah, which like, was that's gotta super, be a challenge. Yeah, yeah, which was super tight back then. Which, of course, we all go back to like Mario Brothers. I mean, that that fucking theme is insane. I mean, like I remember in college, like I was in this band when, of course, uh, I don't smoke as much as I used to, but you know, we would just sit there <laughs> and blaze up Me for like, a long time <laughs> and learn like you know the the whole like I mean, we could play the entire first level. And, but of course, you know, you smoke enough and you just sit there and you just play the same note like 17 times. You're like, yeah, okay. And, you know, but yeah, I mean, those, those limitations, like, I, like as a drummer, a thing that I used to do in, in our old band is like, if I, if I was feeling stuck, I would just like take away all my symbols and like, okay. Oh no. Now, like now, now play the song, you know? Um, so I, I love that kind of thing. Like, okay, so this thing that you're hearing now, try to figure out how to play that on just the side of the, you know, floor top, you know, instead of a hi hat. Oh I, wow! I love that kind of thing. Now I wanted to ask, do you have a particular favorite uh, symbol brand? Because I want to see if it matches with mine, and a favorite drumstick brand. I'm I'm really curious to know. I, I I've never been like uh, when it comes to that kind of thing, and when it comes to guitars too, I've never been like this tech guy. Um, I think mostly because I spent so much of my time as a drummer being just broke as fuck. So it was like symbol <laughs> band is like whatever someone could give me. <laughs> um, so like I mean I always had Zildjian's, but like I played on nicer stuff, sure. Um, but a lot of the the music I was always into, like, I mean, I love Tom Waits, uh, man, man, I'm into that kind of thing. So the darker, the nastier, the, you know, not crisp broke ass kind of sound is sort of what I went for. Like, um, I, I polished my cymbals one time and I was like, Oh God, they sound terrible now. <laughs> they sound too good. I totally get it. Yeah. Gritty <laughs> sounds are pretty awesome. Um, Patrick, me, my... is your brand is your brand Zildjian? It is, but I think that's because I really only have played Zildjian. Same reason. I, for- I think that's. I think that might be the only company that makes cymbals. <laughs> They're also from Massachusetts, so maybe I'm a little. Are they biased. really? They are. They are. They're an now, old cymbal company. I bet. I bet your your brand of stick is Vic Firth as well. You saw my tweet. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's just that's that's you know every drummer plays Zildjian. Every drummer. Well, when I, I when I was in school, I had to take a, a a percussion class with actual percussionists, and I you know went to the you, you had to have sticks, and I went to the store and I was just like give me the cheap ones, and the percussionists and I'm not even exaggerating here, the percussionists literally made fun of me because I had Vader sticks and not Vic Firth, um <laughs> like that's I I don't know I guess that's the the shit brand that's the cheap brand um I mean, everybody I- plays Vic Firth. <laughs> So this is my guitar pick of choice. 
Can you describe that to audio listeners? Oh, oh, hey, yeah, that's the thing too, isn't it? So the the green Dunlop, I mean, yep. they have this matte finish. You can actually hang on to them. That's my thing. When it comes Dunlop to, is the Vic Firth of guitar. Exactly. <laughs> but like what I always went to, so like what size stick do you play? I don't know. <laughs> like when I first started playing. The one that hits drums. <laughs> well, when I first started playing, especially in punk, like I was playing these five A's because – they were like jazz sticks, but I could move fast as hell, but I wasn't hitting very hard. Oh, we're talking yeah. about the width of the stick, not yeah, the yeah. length. I thought yeah. you said length. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a bit. People maybe. don't care about the length. They care about the width. It's about the curve. We're not talking about drum sticks, are it, and, and frankly, if we're honest, it's about the motion of the sticks, not even the girth. It's all in the wrist. Um, so I remember that I don't like it too skinny, but I don't like it too thick. It hurts. My wrist. So that, that was the thing that I had to. <laughs> this is so bad. We got to get off this. But I, I um, no, oh, I'm losing my train of thought now. But um, I remember the first time I went into a studio, like when we had like an actual producer, and and, and I was playing with these little five A's because I could I could play fast, but like I didn't understand like the tone of of hitting the drums yet, and he was just like. He, he switched out my sticks. He's like, you can't play these. Like, I can't even hear the snare on this, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then after that, like, I started working on, um, and also, like, you know, especially when you're a drummer, like, you know, fitness and stuff and, like, weightlifting, like, helped. But then I started playing with, like, fucking, like, tree trunks because it just, like, could beat the shit out of the, the snare. And it took a while to get the speed back playing with something that thicker. But, like, that's – I could care less what brand it is. It, it's about, like, the size has to feel right to me. Oh, yeah, that's definitely a good point. Now, I do want to um, move things towards uh, your projects that you're currently working on. Um, on your website, you mentioned uh, it looks like When It Comes. I don't know what that is. It looks like a film. It says a film, so assuming it's a film. <laughs> um, I, I probably need to update a few things on the site. Um, so When It Comes, uh, that's a film we shot uh, right before COVID hit. We're actually still kind of stuck in post-production because we need to go back and do some pickup shots and things have kind of like held off on that. Um, but that's been a super fun project. Um, so the, the director, Jay Zachary Thurman, a super talented guy, he's here in Atlanta. And that was our first project together that we started. And I signed on to that early enough. This is one of those films where I was able to write a, a, a ton of music and, bring it on to set, play it for the actors. It's a story about, um, takes place in the seventies and there's this creature that after it kills someone, it can take their shape. And there's this guy who, uh, his whole family has been killed by this thing. And so he's just out for revenge. And so he's kidnapping girls to be bait for this thing basically. Um, but it was a super fun project and, uh, musically was, was a blast because again, like going back to pulling what I'm seeing on screen into the music, all the percussion was trees and sticks and, and leaves. And like, I, um, we I, actually, another time that we were, uh, staying up in, in North Georgia, in the mountains we rented a place and i just spent like the whole weekend just sampling just all 
kinds of stuff in the woods and you just get all this texture and everything. So like, I absolutely love the score for that. And I'm really hoping we get to wrap that up, uh, hopefully early in next year. So that's one. Um, I just finished a, another short film, um, also with that same director with Zach that was really cool because it was, it was different for me. It was a drama, this really heartbreaking story. Um, that's now out on, on Vimeo. It's kind of starting to make its rounds. We're, we're probably going to do a, a longer version of that and, and head to, to festivals next year. Um, nice. But, but that was a blast. And, and that was the one that I was referencing earlier. That was like literally just piano and cello. Mm. Um, that was just this really, um, it, it kind of came pretty, pretty quickly as far as the, the melody went, but um, I was really happy with that. I then, I don't know how much about this, I'll, I'll talk loosely about this because I don't know how much you can say. Um, I'm going to be working on my first documentary, which is cool because I haven't done anything like that before. And mm. this will be a feature that we're hoping is going to have some wide distribution, which will be really cool. Um, but it has uh, four different distinct characters that all have from different parts of the country who have different influences from punk to hip hop to Hilder Gutendutter, like kind of Joker theme sort of stuff. And I get to kind of be like all over the place with this thing, which uh, I'm really excited to just branch out like that and kind of actually, I'm really just excited to like create a fake punk band for this thing. <laughs> um, that sounds awesome, so, man. So, so that we're starting on, there's um, a, so Schrader Thomas, he's a director in Austin, and I worked on Cheap Devils, uh, which was a, a short film that came out this summer, and that was actually the project that um, I actually finally won my first uh, uh, award, IMDb award for for uh, best original score. No shit, um, congrats. Uh, thank you. I it's like I I was. I was blown away. I was so excited. It's, yeah, it's a big deal. over there. Like, What's it? Which one is uh, it? Is it the Jack and Sally one? No. It's a, the, <laughs> oh, is it? I don't know how much you can see. <laughs> I can only see uh, Jack and Sally next to a uh, triangle. Oh, so that is, well, I'm going to start losing your audience. That is my grandmother's metronome. Um, oh, okay. She passed away when I was like, uh, I don't know, 10 years old. Um, oh. she, she was an organ player. Hmm. And, um, she uh, had some, some random stuff like that, but I got to keep her, her metronome. Nice. I, I always do kind of feel like it's going to like tick on its own at some point. And, like, no, if it ticks <laughs> along while you're playing a song, are you just going to be like, well, I guess we're doing this finally. Well, I, I would be like, grandma, can you at least like stay in time? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so he and I were, were in uh, pre-production on, on another film that uh, we were supposed to shoot in November. Of course, it got like pushed back because of COVID. So I think we're going to shoot in January. Um, but this this project's really cool because it's kind of like this um, uh, serial killer origin story kind of film, um, which is a blast because it goes back and forth between the time that started all of this, which is in the eighties and then to present. So I get to mess around with like some synth stuff 
for like the 80s scenes and then go back to so it's like this very um nightmare uh nightmare on elm street kind of sound for for that stuff and then go back in so like i i love that kind of thing mm. um and then uh josh and i josh mom and i we, we uh probably can't talk about a lot of that but we we have some things that are that are coming up uh um, that you should definitely be seeing um, probably early on in next year. So, well, if uh, you and this Josh fellow want to come on after uh, you're looking for that to be promoted, get your asses here, sir. <laughs> Absolutely, Josh. Who? <laughs> <laughs> he's this guy. <laughs> as nice as he is, he he's one of the few guests where I was actually pretty fucking nervous to talk to at first, just because of who he is and. Mm. Uh, Brennan had to text me, dude, calm down. <laughs> funny Josh is, did a wonderful job of putting everybody at ease, though. Um, yeah. Like, I've heard a lot of podcasts that he's on, but for whatever reason, about 15 minutes into ours, he just started doing impressions. And he never really, he never really let up on it. Like he would, he, you know, he would answer questions. He, he would, came out of nowhere. He would be himself, <laughs> but you know, you could count on an impression every every five minutes or so. It, it was interesting <laughs> it's funny yeah, like i mean the funny thing is like he's not immune to, to any of that like i remember the first few times we would have zoom meetings about stuff like he would you know the josh mallerman outfit the sport coat and everything you know <laughs> in the hat he, he, in the hat and he's so, gonna like, be a simpson character one day yeah exactly so like before <laughs> we would have a meeting like he was always in that outfit and likewise i would make sure i was in like my, my coolest punk rock t-shirt and like you know my hair was all right and everything and then like you know a handful of months into our friendship and stuff it would be like in our fucking pjs <laughs> all right i'll let my guard down now. <laughs> yeah he um seriously he he's the kind of author where i could see him being like george romero in the sense where Normally, the author is hidden behind their stories, but Mallerman's just too – whether he likes it or not, he's just oozing with too much of a interest, and he, he's got a thing that I could see him being a Simpsons character and having a uh, Halloween costume <laughs> based off of his life. <laughs> I always yeah. love when uh, I see random posts by – him where his fiance is dressed up like him. Yeah, did you see that for Halloween? <laughs> yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, she she's incredible, man. Like she she's such a character, and um, I mean she's a she's a great actor in her own right. Um, mm. I, I like she's like they did a uh, this crazy film. I don't know how many years ago it was. Um, he probably doesn't want me to talk about it, but and and she was in that, and and she played a dude in it and like to see her transform like because she loves like makeup stuff like I mean, that sort of thing is like makeup design and um yeah she's got skills if you saw her in this thing you're like that can't be the same person he talks about allison a lot and at one point after i don't even know how long how much time passed he's like oh allison's my fiance by the way like me and brennan knew because we listened to him but for someone new i I feel like they'd be like, hey, I think I missed the introduction of <laughs> You just assume everybody who's listening knows who Allison is, so. Yeah, yeah. he's like, oh, you know, Allison. I like yep. it. I love when couples love to talk about each other in such a, a nice way. As weird as that sounds, it's not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, Chris, I won't ask you to confirm or deny, and I, I obviously I don't even know if this is what you're referring to, but 
I I would just love to see the whole Carpenter's Farm thing get, you know, a physical release treatment, you know, a hardcover book with, you know, Josh's story and um, Shane Douglas Keene's poems maybe at the beginning of every chapter, uh, complete with, you know, a vinyl of your um, – I guess it could be a CD, but let's face it. It's it. Let's do, let's do vinyl. Um, oh, Josh, it, dude, Josh, Josh would, Josh would do it. Vinyl. Josh that would do vinyl. A, that guy yeah. loves vinyl. Um, so, and you know, I know Michael Bailey wrote a novella with it. Um, and there are a few other people who I'm sure I'm forgetting who did either novellas or stories that go with it. I would love to see a physical release that just encapsulates that period. Um, when we're dealing with, with, with something that we've never seen before at, at this point quarantine is is old news you know we've all been dealing with it for eight nine months and you know we're all dealing with it in different ways by november but um at at that time when you guys were doing it in may or june or whenever it was uh it, it was new it was weird it was it was to a degree frightening um and 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 you guys entertained us all to encapsulate that and kind of, you know, set it in concrete, set it in stone with a physical re- – I, I would love to see that personally. So I'll, I'll answer it in this way and, and tease a little more. Um, it's one of the things I was referring to. Um, <laughs> nice. Now, uh, we – so the album's already been mastered um, by this amazing uh, dude in L.A. Um, uh the the end result of that isn't quite set in stone, but there there will be a, a release in uh, early next year. Uh, the first version of that isn't going to be vinyl just yet, but that is the the hope for a more permanent thing, um, for sure. Which is, I mean, it just blows me away. But I mean, I agree. I mean, that that whole time, I mean, that was that was therapy for all of us that were involved in the creation of that stuff. I mean, cause it, it was scary as hell. I mean, it's, you know, all of this is still, you know, yeah. frightening, but at the time it, it was all like, we didn't know what next month looked like. I mean, it, so I have asthma. So like I was terrified of getting this thing. And, and so like my wife was the one that would mask up and go to the grocery store for us. And um, I remember back then, like not, just it, it was just so new like you know she'd come in and like hose herself down in Lysol and, and whatnot and it, it just we didn't know it, you know and but then we had this thing where it was like again when social media is at its best connecting people who've never met in person to do this really intimate thing which is create art together and bring all of these mediums together to to just be vulnerable. I mean, Josh first and, and foremost, be vulnerable to like write a thing in, in front of people. And like, I'm going to make mistakes. Like there's typos <laughs> all over this thing. I'm sure. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And that, you know, just kind of goes back to, you know, the, the character he has, which then goes back to, again, the kind of music that he loves is very in step with, you know, my upbringing. And I think it just comes back to like, just genuine. I, I want to make a thing to make people feel a way. I don't 
like I don't want it to be too heady. It's not about me. This is just a a, a thing I want to present. I mean, we're we're all into any kind of art, and and I I do think it's mostly. I don't, I don't think it's all escapism, but it's it's a big part of it. And I I just I don't know. I that was forever. I I will remember this this time. Um, and and I don't think you're wrong labeling it escapism, especially at the time that it was coming out. Like it was absolutely escapism. Now I remember, um, a lot of authors within the horror genre, either making their eBooks free or like down to that 99 cent mark. Not only to, you know, help people, but to encourage them to stay home, like, hey, here's something to do. Here's, yeah. you know, here's six hours of reading. Um, download it for 99 cents and fucking stay home. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, it, I, I, I wouldn't hate a second round of that, you know, since our numbers are um, over the moon. I, I know that they are here in Massachusetts. I saw um, I, I, I don't know if you read or heard about Paul Tremblay's book Survivor Song. Yeah. Um, where, you know, he wrote it, you know, well over a year ago, long before he could have predicted COVID unless he's some sort of, you know, magical man. He is um, brilliant. <laughs> he, he is brilliant. <laughs> Question. Um, and he, you know, made some offhand comment in his book that Massachusetts had seen 10,000 deaths due to the um, the plague that he, you know, created in his book. And now Massachusetts has has bypassed 10,000 COVID deaths, um, and and the numbers are just out out of out of this world. Um, I, I'm getting away from what I originally said, but you know all the all of the people who made their books either free or cheap uh, to the, the the community coming together was incredible right off the bat, like from. I believe the the date was March 13th because it was the last time before yesterday that we had a Friday the 13th and it uh, didn't wind up so well. Um, And then, you know, for Josh to say, I'm going to write, I'm going to do the, you know, literary, excuse me, a literary equivalent of a live album um, in order to, you know, just send something out to people who are who are home, who are scared, who are. Yeah. nervous who are living through unprecedented times um and then for you to join him for shane to write that poetry and you know shane is a friend of the show and he is an incredible poet he is you know if you read his poetry it's really wonderful stuff he is just an absolute talent and before this i feel like he was very not even i feel like i know for a fact that he was very reticent about putting his stuff out there and, you know, letting people read it. And for him to say, I'm going to read a chapter, I'm going to write something in response to it, and I'm going to put it out there for everybody to read. Um, that, that was huge. And it's great stuff um, yeah. for everybody to come together and basically kind of collaborate music, poetry, prose on this project. It was, it was absolutely freaking huge for, the community at large to be able to read, to be able to hear, to be able to immerse themselves in. Um, and, you know, I, I'm glad to, you know, we're happy to talk to you all these months later that you were part of that project. It, 
it was exciting. I mean, it, it was, it was a thing to, it, but, but also, I mean, um, Shane and I, and you know, we've hung out, got drunk together on a zoom call before. Like he, he's such a cool guy. Um, he has such a cool voice. Uh, I want to do like a spoken <laughs> word album with him. He like, sounds I would like saying Mr. Rogers. I've yeah. heard that somewhere. Yeah. He's, he's so, he's so cool. Um, but like, you know, I, I don't think any of us are, are immune to those insecurities. The first thing that I wrote for Carpenter's Farm, I like um, uploaded and tagged Josh on two two pieces. I, I then second guessed the second thing that I did, and I hated it, and I deleted it. And then when he was commenting to me, he was like, "Hey, I love this one thing, but I, I'm going to this other thing that you tagged me now. It says it's gone." And I'm like, "Ah, yeah, yeah, like." I was all insecure about it and then sent him that thing. And then he loved that more than the thing that I thought was, was better. But you know, it was, it, it was kind of like after that, it was like, okay, this, this process, this project, it's, it's all about that. We're just going to like show our cards just, you know, it, I mean, you know, there were chapters that I was like, well, that was shit, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but it's out there and it's like, Hey, this is, this is what I had. This is me. And, uh, but that's awesome man and you are a very fun person and um i just want to say my wife seems hard to impress with uh when i'm like hey so we got this guest and that guest and she because she's not into horror she reads she's she's fucking smarter than me but she <laughs> she doesn't read well. much yeah <laughs> not a high bar but um i bring that up because today while i was making dinner for uh us I was just playing um, your soundtrack for Carpenter's Farm. I'm like, hey, we're going to have this guy on the show tonight. And she was like, oh, wow. And that's all she said. But trust me, that means a lot. It was like, (laughs) well, "Well, there's a tangible element to it. You know, like (laughs) you say, we're going to have, you know, this author. She's not going to read the book, man. She doesn't like the she doesn't like the books we do. Um, (laughs) She's like the books I write. It's actually talented. Like, listen to him bang on that guitar. (laughs) Um, let's let's move to what are you reading? Because I know you're a reader too. We've pretty much established that throughout the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, I well, actually, funny enough, I I just bought it came in Amazon today. Speaking of, and no, like ass kissing or anything, but Mad Black Wheel, which I have yet to to read of Josh's. Um, I just. Got also, which I think I was going to finish reading first, and shit, now I can't remember. Oh, I see Coraline. I just noticed that. Oh, yeah. That, like, <laughs> book is, I mean, I, I, the movie was cool, but yeah. that, that book was was phenomenal. Who, who am I, I? I feel like Neil Gaiman is kind of like a, um, a, met, a personality metric. Like, if you know who Neil Gaiman is and you – you know, even if you know who he is, but especially if you enjoy his work, I want to hang out with you. So if, if, he, if you know who he is and you hate him, fuck you. He, <laughs> like he was the, I don't know. He, for me, he was kind of like the drug that sort of like mm-hmm. brought me back into reading. Um, so like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, so I, I was the, the generation of scary stories to tell in the dark. Mm-hmm. That was, the book like I, th- I think all three of us are kind of pat, yeah, pat can you confirm that 
Uh, I wasn't actually for that series, but I was old enough. I was more, I was like super into Goosebumps. God damn, so, 1980. So, Pat was born in 1989. Um, yeah. so I don't know when you were born. I was, I was 85. Patrick is a is a baby, relatively speaking. <laughs> yeah, no, you're the youngest one in the group. Sorry, right. a bearded baby. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like scary stories. I mean that that was a, a thing. I mean that was like the coveted you know yeah. book that that series. Goosebumps, sure. Um, but I remember like reading uh, Christopher Pike. Uh, when I was like in, in junior high and, um, and he, uh, I remember like, I think I wrote it down because I thought about it. whisper of death. Uh, not a very cool title, but, um, I remember that's we were, actually a really cool title. I think hey, it's, it's, it's all right. And, but, uh, I, that book was the first book that I read that like, the, the story like twisted and did this whole thing that just sucked me in. And it was like the first thing that I read, like within a couple of days of getting it that made me go like, Oh, like, well, well books are also cool. <laughs> like, and so like I, I had those, those kind of moments, but for sure, like Neil Gaiman, uh, uh, graveyard, um, graveyard book. Tells the name of that book, the graveyard book. It is the graveyard book. Yeah. yeah. That, like, I mean, that, like, grabbed me. I mean, Neil Gaiman, yeah, he, I mean, he's one of my heroes. American Gods, yeah. of course. Like, um, yeah. But the, the thing that I was thinking about that I just got was The Hollow Places by uh, T. King T. Kingfisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just got it, like, a couple days ago. I was, like, two chapters in. And uh, this is the first thing of hers that I've read. I can't remember her real name. That's her pen name. Um, but in this story, she's, uh, recently divorced and the way she writes about divorce, I'm like, okay, she's either been through this or knows someone very mm-hmm. close because it was just stuff like, you know, her ex is posting things like every day is a gift. That's why they call out the present. And I'm like, Oh, I've fucking been there. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's uh, those two are kind of what I'm diving into this next week. Um, but uh, Ted Grau, T. E. Grau, um, he, uh, uh, I, I don't even know how I, I found him, but um, a couple of his books really like sat with me that I, I, I still think about. There was one I can't remember the name of it. It was it was a short. It was a novella, but it was like this super cool version of a vampire story where um what the hell's the name of that book i give books away after i finish it like i used to hang on to them and hoard them and stuff but as soon as i finish them i always give them to someone that i think will enjoy so i don't have it here anymore um <laughs> but uh it was this awesome story that this girl who's in love with this other girl who had it in her head that the reason this girl was sick um the thing that would cure her was um if she had been a vampire and she could make her eternal. And at the beginning, you're just like, Oh, she's just psycho. And that's not a thing. And so she's trying to find actual vampires in her city. And she's just ending up at these goth clubs and stuff. But then the real vampires of that city are noticing her that she's kind of following this path. And uh, it, it was just, it, it was awesome. I, I would love to see it as a film. It, it was so yeah. cool. 
That would be neat. I actually, um, I did a tweet about car. I meant to say earlier about the book Coraline, yeah. uh, where I bought it from a, a thrift store, and I took a picture of the front. It's the same paperback cover as yours. Yeah. I took a picture of the back, and there were stickers on it. That shit pisses me off because it like <laughs> ruins the book. So I just have you read me a- Coraline, Pat? Nah, dude, it's in my like. It's on Center. my bookshelf. There, well, I've seen the movie. <laughs> Dude, I have so many fucking books, man. I just no, buy more I get, than I can I get read. But, um, uh, Chris, I, real, real quick, we have uh, a. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't done or anything, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what, Pat? I bet I guarantee this was in your, you know, head somewhere to come out. But uh, we have a friend of the show, Cassie Daly. She is an author slash artist, and she is on this show called The Pike Cast. Um, where they basically read a Christopher Pike book and they dissect it. Um, some people from the perspective of, I read this book when I was like 12 and now I'm reading it again at 32, um, or whatever age. And they talk about it. Um, we're, we're, we're going to throw your name at, at them. Um, and really they, yeah, they there's three po- hosts I of think. that podcast, and they usually uh, – Pat, maybe you can correct me. I think that every episode has a guest host where they bring somebody um, you know, from outside that main three, and they read a Christopher Pike book and talk about it. Um, I, th- I think you would make a wonderful guest on that <laughs> show. <laughs> that would be a blast. Yeah, I'm going to read the first Pike book. Yeah, I agree. Um, Pat has one he's calling dibs on. <laughs> well, no, I I like the cover. It's yeah. the Eternal Enemy. Uh, I've never read Pike before, so that'll be fun. That'll be in February. But yeah, you would be, I assume, would be a fine guest on the show. But yeah. Pat, could, I interrupted you. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. But Chris, but Chris could prove me wrong. <laughs> um, I, I, I hope to not. Are you saying he'd be a terrible guest? <laughs> That's what I said. Really I replied. <laughs> he's been a fine guest today but um <laughs> i was just saying that uh tag nail gaming in a tweet that had the uh back of the cover and said hey uh, I par- i'm paraphrasing myself um i tried looking for it, i can't find it um but i basically said hey does this warrant me burning down the thrift store and he just said in his nice polite way no please do not do that and it <laughs> It blew up. The tweet blew up. I wish I bookmarked it, but I He can't. is British, so he is polite. <laughs> He's polite, but I also remember hearing him say uh, he was – and I, I don't know what interview this was or, like, how long ago it was, but he was talking about uh, the students, uh, college students that would reach out to him for, like, book reports and stuff, and he just – he hated it. And so his reply would always be, pretend I'm one of those dead authors. I don't mind. Just write about me as if I'm dead. <laughs> when like, you have an Damn. author who is creative, inspiring, and non-problematic, like, oh my god, latch, latch onto them like grim death. And, and Neil Gaiman fits all three of those. He's just, you know, everything he writes is creative as fuck. Um, it's it's wonderful. It's imaginative. And he's, to, to, he's not a bad person. He's a good person. <laughs> have you listened to his? Uh, so he he did the the narration for uh, Never Neverwhere, um, his, his Audible book. Holy shit! Like it ruined Audible books for me because I'm like, well, <laughs> I've read no the book twice. I have not heard the Audible. 
because it's it's him and he does all these voices and other characters and stuff and it's just like it i mean i, I like I, I lost sleep because i just like yeah. sat up and just like listen no, to he's, him he's just a wonderful human you yeah. know yeah. And and we need those. We need in 2020 more than any other goddamn year. We can use we them. Need, we yeah, we could use wonderful humans. <laughs> now, where can people follow you? Uh, so, um, I mean, primarily Instagram, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Chris Campbell Sound. And the reason is, is because I had Chris Campbell Audio, which is where everything else is. But then something got jacked up with my Instagram handle. I had to start all over again. So uh, Chris Campbell Sound on Instagram or Chris Campbell Audio on Twitter and uh, ChrisCampbellAudio.com. You can find all my stuff there. And we highly recommend going to the SoundCloud is where I can find where I found your uh, a lot of your stuff. And I've which the, the link is right there when you get to my site. So. Yeah. We will have those in the note, uh, the show notes for anyone that needs help finding them. Um, Chris, is there anything you want to say before we say goodnight? Or Brennan, is there anything that you want to say before we say goodnight? Chris, you first, because he asked two people at the same time. <laughs> uh, no, I just like this has been a blast, guys. I'm just I'm, I'm honored that you reached out to me. This has been fun hanging out. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah, and I, I would echo that. I love having musicians on here because I can, you know, talk to them about nerdy musician stuff. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, after this episode with Chris, people will probably no longer tune in if we say, you know, we have a guest who is a musician because they know I'm going to talk about music theory and stuff like that. <laughs> um, you know, we had Nelson Everhart, like uh, Pat mentioned. We have you. Next, people know that we're going to be talking about, like, matrixes which patrick is not as cool as it sounds that's in uh music theory four it's uh it's right after you learn that you you know you you spent music theory one through three learning the rules so that you could break them but it's before you realized that um musicians have uh basically put everything turned everything into math and you know music no longer has any creative aspect to it (laughs) boring (laughs) yeah fucking boring as shit yeah um, no question um but chris it's been an absolute pleasure um i I love being able to kind of talk composition with somebody who can look at it from that aspect of a prolific creative and also can look at it from the aspect of a you know, I understand the keys. I understand the, you know, the 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 creative process behind it, the timbre and everything. Um, I, I've loved this conversation. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, this has been a blast. I'm honored. Thank you, guys. Yeah, and uh, you know, anytime next year, brother, let us know. You got it. Yeah. Everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this. Check out Chris's music. He's got plenty to come by uh, the time that you hear this. Well, actually, this is only a week away, so probably nothing new by then. But he's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> but we we highly encourage it. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Brennan. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for almost two hours. Appreciate you, and have a good one. We are in your mind. We are all around. You are now leaving. Deadhead space. Because I'm an old soul, I've made myself a Negroni. 
I don't know oh, if you guys no. are drinking anything tonight. So no, I wish I got a write tonight. I worked for ten hours and then I I, I spent the next few hours with my family. So yes. I need to I need to write, man. I can't do that drinking. <laughs> what what is a Negroni? I've never heard of that. So the reason I know of it is um, it's it's this old like seventies old school thing. So it's gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. It's this oh, old Italian thing, and yeah. Chris, you may be too fancy for this show. <laughs> <laughs> we hope to uh, get your shit together. I got this third take. 